The China Nightmare, The Grand Ambitions of a Decaying State, is the brand new book by Daniel Blumenthal, longtime China expert at the American Enterprise Institute, frequent uh, guest on all things involving President Xi and uh, the future of China, and now the author of The China Nightmare. Good morning, Dan. How are you? I'm doing very well, Hugh. Thanks for having me on. I am a huge fan of concise books that tackle tough topics. If you want to read Nick Kissinger's On China and you've got a month, there is no better book. But if you want to know where China is today, The China Nightmare states it succinctly. And, and I'd like you to put the premise as succinctly as you can before we go to my specific questions. I'm holding it here and I just tweeted out the, the link to it. But what's the specific premise? The premise is China is a very formidable, strong geopolitical competitor to the United States. But we can compete with it because it has a lot of weaknesses and vulnerabilities as well. That also makes it very dangerous, that combination in the short term. That is, that's chapter six and seven of the China Nightmare. And I'm going to go there. But first, a couple of terms. On page seven, early in the book, you refer to China having become missile-centric. I, th- I know that, but I think it's very important to explain what that means. So what that means is, in its very broad and ambitious and successful military modernization program, ballistic missiles have led the way because the United States has been, and Russia, have been banned from from building certain kinds of ballistic and cruise missiles uh, since uh, an arms control deal in in the Cold War. China's taken advantage of that and has uh, really kind of gotten ahead of the United States in a lot of areas because it's been able to build such lethal and accurate ballistic missiles. Now, how many do they have, Dan Blumenthal? And does the China nightmare include the scenario where they they have a missile Pearl Harbor at the United States? It, it doesn't include uh, that particular nightmare, but that can absolutely happen. So, it, so they have about 2,000 uh, short and medium range ballistic missiles and uh, uh, more longer range ballistic missiles. And the Pearl Harbor scenario could be that we wake up one day and all our bases in Japan, near China, uh, and all our uh, ports and, and ships that are forward deployed have been hit by accurate ballistic missiles and have been essentially neutralized and taken out. And we'd have no warning of that. It would be a surprise attack. Do you think they have the capacity to do that, Dan? Really? They do have the capacity to do that um, right now. And there are countermeasures we could take. The question is, would they do that? Uh, would they? Would they actually start that big a war right now, because obviously our response would be pretty fierce. Right. The China nightmare also includes a term that I did not know. And I'm still in the introduction. I'll get to chapter six and seven. We don't have to rush. I don't want to give the whole book away, but I, I, I want to know what the middle income trap is, because I know most terms of art in China discussion, but the middle income trap, I do not know. Right. So that goes to the heart of the argument that China got wealthy very quickly or wealthier very quickly since it began its reform and opening process in, in the 1980s, uh, late 1970s. But now it's it's hitting a point where it's gotten everything it can in terms of economic growth from getting laborers and, and rural uh, workers to come to the cities and, and find more productive work, higher wages. That's not going to happen anymore. So what usually happens with countries if they uh, don't want to get stuck in sort of a middle income level is they have to innovate. They have to start really innovating. Uh, and uh, very few countries are, are were able to do that in the past. South Korea is one of them. 
And I argue that I don't think China's on a path to get out of this trap where you remain at sort of a middle income level. And we'll come to that in, when I get to chapter seven, because you talk a lot about it's not an innovation nation. I want you to expand on that. But before we do, uh, chapter six, this is where we talk about expansion. And I think is the most interesting chapter because it poses the threat clearly. About 30 minutes ago, Jerry Hendricks, Captain Jerry Hendricks, retired in the United States Navy, tweeted out, People's Liberation Army Navy plan, exercising at sea with all caps, eight new ships, which their shipyards produce like so many sausages coming out of a grinder. We need more dry docks and shipyard yards if we were to compete. You write on page 79, the main military goal of China, the main military goal is to become a sea power. That is contra what a lot of people think. They think they just want to have defensible borders, but that's different from a sea power, Dan Blumenthal. That's right. So the short-term military goal is to be able to attack Taiwan and force it to unify. But in order to do so, you need to be a sea power, particularly if you're contesting the United States. You need to be able, to, if, if you're China, to make sure that uh, U.S. vessels can't flow in around Taiwan, around Japan. Uh, and you need lots of different kinds of ships and submarines to be able to deny the United States' ability to do that. On top of that, now now China is expanding its sea power further afield into places like the Middle East and the Indian Ocean because it has more oil and other uh, energy and commodity interests it wants to protect, and it does not want to rely upon the United States for that protection. So, so Dan, the United States has 355 ship Navy as a goal. Uh, recently, people have begun to talk about 450 ship Navy. None of that makes any sense in the absence of an understanding of what the threat is. And you're too young, but Time Magazine used to put in those wonderful comparisons of the Soviet Union and the United States. And they would put men under arms and they would put number of bombers and number of fighters and number of ships. How big is the People's Liberation Army Navy? Do we have to worry about it yet? We do have to worry about it for a number of reasons. One is it's on the path to becoming the biggest Navy in the world, probably in the next five to 10 years, uh, over 500 total ships. Uh, but you also, it has a second Navy, as I argue in the book, which is the, what they call their non-military Navy, Coast Guard ships, sea vessels, uh, fishing vessels that are armed. That's what they've used in the South China Sea to reclaim territory. And what they try to do is take aggressive acts, act, actions with those ships in ways that won't provoke a full military response. So we really do have to worry. They really are making progress in their territorial ambitions, and the Navy is only growing. Now, my navalist friends say, now, wait a minute, we've got 11 carriers, they have two. And that doesn't even count the Queen Elizabeth from Great Britain and India's carrier and other Australian carrier, et cetera. Is it realistic to think their economy can support a blue water Navy, Dan Blumenthal, that can take on and defeat, if only in one action, the United States Navy? If we compete effectively, which is what our strategy is supposed to be right now, and we build the kind of lethal Navy, lethal joint force that we're capable of building, if we take this seriously, then I think China will see that it, it actually cannot afford to build the kind of Navy that, that can compete with the United States and take on the United States directly. But absent a resisting uh, power, a resisting effort like that, China will be able to continue to make progress as it has so far. 
What you, what the China nightmare is very good at doing is laying out some aspects of the nightmare that have not been covered in either the hundred year marathon by Michael Pillsbury or Dr. Kissinger's book or any of the books, Robert Kaplan's. One of them is the Arctic strategy. Uh, that is simply not very well understood because, of course, China's nowhere near the Arctic. So how can they have an Arctic strategy? Would you explain that, Dan Blumenthal? Yes. Yeah, so they're expanding. One of the things that we really have to watch very carefully is China's relationship with Russia. And China's looking for, if you think about one of its biggest fears, it's to be cut off from oil supply and, and energy supply from, from the Middle East by the United States Navy. So it's looking for other sources of energy and, and routes that don't that don't buy that don't have to that bypass the United States Navy. So cooperating with Russia to build a LNG terminal at Yamal in, in Russia that then uh, and then cooperating with Russia to build big tankers and icebreakers to go through the Arctic down through Europe uh, has been a goal and, and they've succeeded in many ways. Uh, it, it, of, of the Chinese Navy and Chinese uh, strategic thinkers and decision makers. And this has actually concerned uh, the Norwegians, the Danes. Uh, we, for a while, were taking a look at what we could do to bolster our presence around Greenland. So this is really becoming more of a, of a global challenge. Uh, you know, and, and, and our, the Arctic has become a, a new contested area. So, Dan, explain, you know, I stopped taking science in 12th grade. Uh, you know, it's not what I do. And I never took geology. So I'm not a geologist and I never stayed at a Holiday Inn. I don't know how China can be this big and this poor in energy resources. Do they not frack there? Do they not search offshore? Do they not have anything when it comes to what the United States is now the largest energy producer in the world? Do they have nothing? Well, they don't. They, they have uh, uh, resources. And, and if they were actually able to engage in the kind of fracking, hydraulic fracking uh, that we've been able to, they would be able to actually uh, use those resources. The problem for China is a, is a couple things. The industrial structure of their energy industry is very uh, inefficient and monopolistic and does not encourage the kind of innovation that we've had in our uh, energy industry to cause the fracking revolution. The second thing that's a real problem for China is how badly misused uh, the land is and, and how polluted the water is. So they have real water problems in terms of being able to, to access that, that energy, that oil. So they have the resources, but they cannot, uh, they cannot exploit them. And that's true, by the way, for agriculture, uh, for, uh, for all sorts of things on farmlands that they should have, but are actually buying and importing abroad. So it's cheaper for them to go abroad for their energy needs than it is to produce the systemic change that will allow them to exploit the resources they have at hand in their own boundaries. Absolutely. And in some cases, it's not even doable. So if you look at China's activities in, in buying livestock and buying companies here that produce pork and so on, uh, th that should be done in China. But they've so badly misused their their land, uh, anything that, that's water intensive is badly misused. And so they're importing things that, that they should be building uh, and making at home. Dan Blumenthal, this is very interesting because I thought under Deng and going forward, Xiaoping to President Chairman Xi, that they had adopted enough market innovation that the market, and without the permitting and without the environmental protections, without all the costs that you find in the United States, I thought they had pumped uh, free market incentives into their economy? Well, they definitely had. So 
Deng Xiaoping uh, caused a mini revolution in economics and based on free market principles, without a doubt. That's why China grew so fast when it did. Uh, so, so in order to get from the terrible state of affairs economically it was after Mao to where to what it has become, they definitely had to adopt some market principles uh, and so forth. A lot of that has been reversed over the last 10, 11 years. I have that in my book. Even before Xi, the, the pressure on his uh, predecessor, Hu Jintao, to reverse some of these reforms uh, by all, for all sorts of reasons was immense. So a lot of the market reforms were reversed. Uh, and in terms, of, in terms of things like technological innovation or, or some of the things we're talking about now, there's no real system of property uh, rights or land rights. So when you don't have any real system of private ownership and land rights, uh, it, it, this is what happens to your farmland. This is what happens to your ability to frack. This is what happens to uh, your, your ability to gain a profit from, from the exploitation of the resources in your own backyard. That's the classical liberal answer. You can't expect efficiencies to exist where there aren't market mechanisms to identify them. They just won't. They won't be brought to the surface. So Dan Blumenthal, is there... We we look at China right now at a unique moment, and uh, that unique moment is they unleashed upon the world a plague. They hit it. They covered it up. You, you treat this at the end of your book, and they've caused millions of deaths, and they're unapologetic, and they continue to lie. That If that happened in any even semi-democratic country, the leader would be out, right? If a president of the United States did that and covered it up and poisoned the world, they'd be impeached. Does Xi face a realistic Khrushchev option? In other words, walking in someday and finding out he's no longer general secretary. I believe that he does. This, these are things that are extremely hard to find evidence for and to discern. But I believe that uh, based on my own conversations over a number of years with uh, Chinese elites, uh, wealthy Chinese elites who are trying to move their money out and their children out of China, there are many, many people who believe that he's both arrogant and has mishandled uh, the economy for many years and now badly mishandled COVID. So I think the story we're getting from most of the media about how well China is doing uh, in terms of its response to COVID is just not right. I mean, we, we still don't have basic data on, on actually how many infections there were in China, how many deaths there were. So I, I do believe, and we've seen some high-profile uh, criticisms of Xi on the COVID response, uh, but but you don't you don't shut down all information about COVID and jail scientists if you think you're doing well on on your response. So I I believe there are scenarios in which a lot of uh, there could be a lot of pressure brought to bear uh, on him within the Chinese Communist Party uh, to step down to um, uh, to have someone else uh, take over. You know, there's a four square box for everything, Dan Blumenthal. In China, it would be member of the party, not a member of the party, supporter of Xi critic of Xi. And the ones I'm most interested in are critics of Xi who are in the party. And we won't know they're there, just like we didn't know Brezhnev and Gromyko and Kasigian were getting ready to say, see ya, Nikita. Do you think that kind of thing exists? Well, I do think that kind of thing exists. I think some of them speak out now and again before their jails are disappeared. Uh, and, and it's exactly as you say, when and if it does happen that, that, that some group decides that it's time for Xi to go, it'll look like 
it was obvious that it should that we'll look back and say, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, how did he stay in power for so long? It's the most difficult thing to predict. Now, now it seems uh, now it seems fanciful. But when and if it does happen, we'll we'll all look back and say, of course, of course he's of course he's gone. Of course they couldn't take him anymore. And let's follow up. If you're a 35 year old, how old are you, Dan? You're young. Uh, I'm 48. Okay, you know you're a 48 year old CCP riser, and you thought you had a path to the top, and you look, and all of a sudden Hong Kong has lost its luster. You've got a genocide declared around the world, not just by Team Trump, but by Team Biden. And you're killing the world with a virus. What do you do? And who do you talk to? And do they have a Stasi-like surveillance of everything you say so you can be disappeared immediately? Well, they do. So one of the things that uh, she has relied upon, and, and I argue in my book, is uh, more so than or has perfected more than his predecessors, is this high-tech surveillance state, uh, really Orwellian in its ability to detect any criticisms of she personally. And, and to quickly disappear people, to jail them, uh, to stop uh, social media uh, commentary on, on anything that even smacks of criticism uh, of Xi Jinping. But the question is, it becomes a, becomes a cat and mouse game. So the question is, how many resources, if you're Xi Jinping, do you, do you have to keep spending to put down that kind of dissent and look over, over your shoulder as powerful CCP families uh, plot against you? You know, and and after a while, you know, can you win that game? And I, I think that that's why things are less stable at the top than than we normally think. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. Time for a pause now in this edition of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. I want to remind you that our sponsor is andrewandtodd.com. There with Sierra Pacific, they lend you money to refinance your house or buy a home or help your son or daughter become investors in real estate by becoming a non-occupying co-borrower They help senior citizens with reverse mortgage. They help veterans with no money down mortgages. They help you refinance. So if you need to get money out of your house or you need a whole new house, go to andrewandtodd.com or call them at 888-888-1172. Now back to this edition of Hugh Hewitt and the interview. I follow the disappearance of senior party leaders as closely as I can, but I don't know that I have ever, except for the four marshals, seeing the People Liberation Army get decapitated quickly. Has Xi had to do that? Because if you really look at China, the place he's got to worry about is that someone in the People's Liberation Army decides, we got a nice army here and we want to keep it. And we got a great Navy here and we want to build it. We don't want to become pariahs in the world. Well, that's right. So I, there, there have been incidences. Uh, when Xi first came to power in 2012, there was a, a scandal with uh, a man named Bo Lai who was trying to make a bid for uh, the presidency, the general secretaryship of the CCP, and he had very close uh, military ties in the regions that he that he oversaw in Chongqing Province. And the CCP, including Xi, had to act very quickly 
to remove those military leaders as well as remove Bo Xilai once she ascended. So uh, there are divisions and, and there are people like she who are sons of, of, of people, their fathers were close to Mao Zedong himself, who have various military ties, various military factions. Part of Xi's massive reform program of the PLA has actually been to rid people who have looked like they're in the PLA who are too close to other factions. Now, Dan Blumenthal, I, I studied Turkey as well and went there with John Bolton a couple of years ago. And they're a new authoritarian regime, meaning that they've always had a strong presidency, but never an authoritarian regime with the military on the side taking power back and forth. And it seems like Erdogan has completely decapitated the military after their failed coup. Can you foresee that kind of a purge happening in China or that kind of an attempted coup happening in China? Well, they're trying, they're trying very hard to coup, coup, uh, you know, coup-proof China. But on the other hand, the things, the things that she has to worry about are that what he's done over the last, uh, let's say, eight years, is he's is he's broken all the rules of it, it's almost like a five families of the mafia and they had unwritten rules before she and one of those rules was you could be very corrupt uh, but if you stood on the standing committee of the Politburo you had absolute immunity once you stepped down but he's broken that rule he's gone after some extremely powerful people uh, and um, and uh, but those people still ha- and he's put them in jail. Joe Young Kong, for example, who was the security czar and had massive oil interests. Uh, those people are lying in wait and waiting for him to make a massive mistake, uh, perhaps in 2022 when uh, there should have been a succession. And, and again, we don't have I wish we had better intelligence on uh, all of this and better information on, on all of this. What we do know is that there are, re- there are very many powerful people who are very angry at Xi. So, Dan, I want to switch to the United States for a second, because Taiwan is at the center of your book, and you point out they want Taiwan to be reunified under not not one China, two governments. They don't like that anymore. They want to go Hong Kong route with Taiwan. I asked Secretary Pompeo when he was at the CIA and his secretary on the seventh floor, I asked every national security advisor, would we honor our treaty commitments to Taiwan? They unblinkingly said yes. But I got to wonder. Do you think the United States would go to war with China over Taiwan? I think that uh, ultimately we would. And uh, it's become the reason I say that. And and I actually just uh, have a piece in the National Review coming out this week, I hope, or the week after on Taiwan. The reason I say that is is Taiwan has no longer become uh, sort of a sentimental issue, an old Cold War ally. A democracy and so forth, it's become the geopolitical pivot point between the United States and China. If China were to successfully invade Taiwan, then uh, our entire position in the Western Pacific would be at risk. There'd be pressure on Japan. There'd be pressure on the rest of the Western Pacific. We can still forestall that, though. The Chinese would have to actually conduct one of the most complex operations in history to invade Taiwan, an, an amphibious invasion of that island. We still, right now, can take steps to make them very uh, much less confident in their ability to conduct such an operation. Well, Dan, I got to ask you about that. Back to the future. In the 50s, Mao would just shell the island, uh, and that would be a crisis, and we'd send the, the fleet in. It, what's them to stop the, the, the updated version of that lobbing missiles at Taiwan? Right. So there's no question that we could wake up tomorrow 
and they could have uh, conducted a ballistic and cruise missile campaign first against our own forces in, in Japan to keep us out, uh, to not be able to respond effectively, and then to start to target Taiwan's, uh, all sorts of targets on Taiwan's uh, leadership and, and military assets. And, and then they can fly over Taiwan with impunity, and, and they're doing that, by the way, increasingly. So uh, that, that can happen. Now, the question is whether that becomes decisive. Does, is it the Battle of Britain? where the Taiwanese are able to hold out until we can respond? Or do they just cave and go right to the negotiating table? Our strategy is basically that they can hold out and they, they then prepare and we help prepare for the, Taiwan, the Chinese invasion force to come over. But that's an amphibious landing that would be more complicated than what we did at D-Day. And that's an amphibious landing that would, and they're not quite there yet. The Chinese are not quite there yet. And that's something... Again, we still have time to prepare to defend. And, and they couldn't hide that, right, Dan? I mean, our intelligence, even our passive intelligence, eye in the sky sort of stuff, they couldn't hide that. It would be very hard to hide. But we do need, uh, as Admiral Davidson of the Indo-Pacific Command has said publicly, we do need a lot more assets that can detect that right now. We need, we need them to flow uh, over to, to the Indo-Pacific. Uh, from uh, from the Middle East and other places, satellites, radar, uh, different kinds of what we call ISR assets. We we one of the biggest deterrents is to not be surprised. So Dan, I am I'm curious though. I hold the deep conviction that the sinking of a United States carrier is an act of war from which you can't walk back. You know, I mean, that's five thousand sailors and their families in the United States and uh, their friends, and that's a nine eleven sort of deal. I don't think anyone could rationally calculate other than a massive response from the United States following that. Do you agree with me? I do agree with you. All right. So that do you think the Chinese understand that? I do. I think one of the biggest deterrents, people for good reasons don't like the term tripwires, right? But, but uh, you know, as, as you mentioned the Cold War before, the strategy on, on, uh, on Germany was essentially to have a contact force in place of the United States, but the Soviets would know that if they had made contact and engaged U.S. forces, there would be an overwhelming response. It's not a perfect analogy, but it does deter the Chinese to know that their U.S. forces, and particularly if we put U.S. forces onto the island in a, in, a, in a conflict like that or the beginning of a conflict, it would, it would deter them. They don't want a massive war with the United States. Now, now, Dan, as we, I don't want to take our podcast audience too long, but I want to get to chapter seven weak points. And one of those weak points is India. It's a big weak point. Uh, although you talked about it in chapter six, India is an obstacle to China on page 85. It has to be a weak point, right? To have the second largest country in the world on your eastern border and hostile to you. Without a doubt. So one of the weakest points that China has is its geography, particularly if if we have a geopolitical strategy that uses that uh, geography to our advantage. So first of all, it has one coastline, only one coastline that goes out to sea. That's where all their major container ports are. And it abuts our allies, Japan, Taiwan, that's again why Taiwan is so important, South Korea, close to the Philippines. That's a weak point. To get out to sea is more expensive for them because of that, unlike the United States. But absolutely, they still have 14 continental borders. One of them is India. 
And we forget so often that China is a continental country. It, it spans part, massive parts of Eurasia. So a relationship uh, with India, which we've been building up for many years, uh, absolutely would have to make China divide up its resources, divide up its its forces, build other kinds of forces that are less threatening to us. Uh, that is a weak point uh, for for China and something we just a relationship we just have to keep building up. I agree with that, and I, I I'm persuaded that most Americans understand that. Now, where I want to play devil's advocate is you make a compelling argument, but I want to push back on it a little bit in Chapter 7, that one of the weak points of the People's Republic of China is that it is not a, quote, innovation nation. My question is, do we know this for a fact or do we hope this? In other words, do we have any idea what they're doing in their secret work? If they've become an Orwellian state, maybe they're a lot more innovative than we know, but we just don't know it. Well, well, so th what I mean by that very specifically is they, they will and have made great leaps uh, in technology, uh, particularly relating to the PLA, missile forces, information capabilities, uh, things that we don't know enough about, like uh, artificial intelligence automation. If you are a, a nation with the resources and scale of China and the ambition of China, and you pour those resources into certain projects, you will – uh, advanced technologically. What I mean is if you compare it to the United States and our ability to, uh, for entrepreneurs and scientists and researchers to really innovate and, and to really capture their intellectual property and the incentive structures to do so, it's an apples and orange comparison. And by the way, we've just seen that on the vaccine race where our vaccines are so much far, so much more uh, effective than, than China's. So it's an apples and oranges comparison. China will make advances technologically. They're not set up to kind of have the innovation system that we have. All right. My last point uh, to push back, and we're almost at our limit here, so I'm glad I got to it. On page 105, you assert that China has insurmountable social problems, to which the question occurs to me, is there ever an insurmountable social problem with a ruthless totalitarian? If you look at Nazi Germany, if you look at Stalin's Russia, they simply killed people. And if you look at Tiananmen Square, that's what they did. If you look at the Uyghurs, that's what they're doing. If you look at Hong Kong, that's what's underway. Is there really an insurmountable social problem if you have a sufficient amount of ruthless people at the top? Well, so the, 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 question, the way I would answer that question is, what is strategically important for the United States? So your point is a very good one if the Chinese decide in the next 10 years or so that they don't care about what their social problems are. They, as you say, are going to be so ruthless about uh, the one, uh, you know, the demographic problems, the, the, the various problems I mentioned in the book, and they're going to make a big push to go for global hegemony and be aggressive abroad, then it, it doesn't matter. But over time, if it wants to sustain the kind of system, uh, you know, the, the dynamism that brought it to where it is today, I think those issues are insurmountable. There's just simply nothing you can do about the fact that you're growing old so quickly in China without enough uh, workers to, to replace uh, the, the retirees. No, no, Dan, let me, let me again challenge that. If you are sufficiently ruthless, if you're Hitler, you kill six million people. And if you're Stalin, you imprison, I don't know, how, many, how big did the gulag get, Dan Blumenthal, 30 million people? 
uh, that what we only kind of assume that totalitarian regimes have reached the limit of their evil with the most evil thing we know. In this case, it would be the Uyghurs. Uh, in fact, it may just be the beginning, right? We just may underestimate the capacity for evil to do evil. Well, I, I take your point and I agree with it. And we see that recently with uh, Bashar Assad. Everyone assumed that he would uh, that he would yes. uh, be over, overturned. But I guess my point is they can stay in power with ruthlessness, ruthlessness for a very, very long time. But they can't they can't grow at the rates that they that they say they need to. If again, if I, you just look at one of the fact one of the factors of growth that are, are starting to slow down, and that is. You cannot grow if you don't have enough labor, uh, and that's what's going to happen in China. So they can stay in power for a very long time, but it, it would be a very different China. It would be sort of a, a stagnant, ruthless China without the dynamism and economic and, and competition that, that they're posing to us today. It would look like the Soviet Union curve in the 80s. It would look like the so- Soviet Union curve. It would look like... Uh, some other di- very ruthless dictatorships that just don't pose the same kind of competitive challenge to the United States. Okay, very last question, and very few people deal with this directly, and I don't think you did. I don't know how we actually answer it. Is the Chinese elite racist? By that I mean the Han are the dominant population group. I've heard for my six decades that it's too multicultural to actually be racist. Is it a systemically racist society? Well, it is in many ways because there is no acceptance of any type of pluralism, ethnic pluralism, as we see with the Uyghurs, religious pluralism, as we see with persecutions against both Muslims and and Christians. Uh, there's a hierarchy of who should be in charge. We certainly don't see anyone but uh, of Han ethnic origin in, in leadership positions. So they, they, they certainly don't allow for for any type of, of diversity or, or, or pluralism, I can't get into their heads and say, you know, this is how they feel about various races. But I look at their actions against any minority group, and it's just vicious and, and intolerant. Oh, you just uh, touched on it. I go back long enough to remember when South Africa became a pariah regime because everyone in the world knew they were an apartheid state. Is China an apartheid state that just says it very quietly and does it? without notice? Well, you'd have to look at the situation with the Uyghurs or the Tibetans because they, they kind of began this process of cultural destruction on Tibet and say, yes, I mean, you know, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's, it's a country that has two different standards, at least, uh, you know, based on ethnicity. Uh, so if you are uh, a Tibetan or if you are a Uyghur Muslim, and you want to practice your religion, and you want to express your culture, you're not allowed to do so. Uh, so do so you think, think the United States elites and the woke left understand the PRC to be systemically racist and ethnocentric? Well, I, I don't I don't think so. Uh, and I don't think that I don't I think we're just starting to understand exactly what it means to say a country's committing a genocide and destroying a culture and, and, and a race. So we're very, very focused on our own uh, problems here. Uh, but but they really do when it comes to China's treatment of ethnic minorities. Uh, you know, it's just not at the same level of, of viciousness and, 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 and lack of tolerance and, and destruction 
full-on destruction of, of religions and, and uh, cultural cultural heritage. So Dan Blumenthal, great book, The China Nightmare, The Grand Ambitions of a Decaying State. I want to close with one last question. Congressman Michael Waltz introduced a resolution to boycott the Winter Olympics of 2022 if China if they're not moved. Uh, that is a, an upping of the ante. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo endorsed that position at CPAC last week. Do you believe the United States should do that, and will they do it? Uh, it seems like we're. It seems like President Biden has said we're not considering it. Um, you know whether we sh whether we should do it. I mean, look, I think we should do it. I think a lot of the Olympics, uh, you know, have become in, in dictatorial and tyrannical states uh, very difficult to to uh, to watch in that sense. And uh, I understand sports is sports, and 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 perhaps there's a way to celebrate global sports and take the politics out of it. But that's not what China is going to allow us to do. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think it's appropriate to hold Olympics at this time uh, unless there are massive changes in, in China's practices against these ethnic minorities. I think you're right. And I hope people are listening to that. Dan Blumenthal, thank you. The China Nightmare in bookstores now at Amazon.com from AEI Press. The China Nightmare, The Grand Ambitions of a Decaying State by Dan Blumenthal. Thank you, Dan. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be on.